kidnapped. Follow instructions exactly, or she'll die. How do I know Karen's still alive? She's buried in a coffin equipped with life-supporting devices for seven days. And when that battery goes, she goes. Oh, my God. I don't want to die like this. That was part of a trailer for the made-for-TV movie The Longest Night, aired in September 1972 on ABC. The movie was based on the real-life kidnapping of Barbara Mackle, who was buried in a box underground for 83 hours, nearly 50 years ago. A detailed retelling of that story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the arrest of a Pearson woman last week who had, according to deputies, a filthy, bug-infested home that contained three dead dogs in a freezer. The Volusia County Sheriff's Office responded to a 911 call and responding deputies made the shocking discovery. Later, I'll discuss the kidnapping of 20-year-old college student Barbara Mackle, the daughter of Florida land developer Robert Mackle. The victim was kept underground while her kidnappers, Gary Christ and his girlfriend, demanded and collected a ransom of $500,000. The case was so high profile and victimized a member of such a powerful Florida family, it elicited the involvement of none other than the FBI's founder, J. Edgar Hoover. My special guest for that segment will be author and historian Jason Buick. Stay tuned for that gripping segment. Coming up, the arrest of three men accused of dragging a shark behind a boat. They got caught after a video of that dragging went viral. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission announced Tuesday the arrest of three men who authorities think are responsible for dragging a black tip shark by a rope behind a speedboat nearly six months ago. The viral video generated a furious reaction from those thousands who watched it. According to the Tampa Bay Times, the video became widely shared on social media in July after someone sent it to a celebrity shark hunter who was shocked and dismayed by the footage. Mark the Shark Cortiano posted the video and stated, quote, For once, I may have to agree with PETA. It was determined by state investigators that the dragging occurred June 26th in state waters off Egmont Key in Hillsborough County. Investigators spent four months on the case, and the result was the arrests of 21-year-old Michael Wenzel of Palmetto, who skippered the boat. Also arrested were 28-year-old Robert Bo Banak III of Bradenton and 23-year-old Spencer Hines of Palmetto. Wenzel is the son of the Manatee County Planning Director, and Panak is the son of the County Commission Chairwoman. Look, he's already almost there. <laughs> that clip from the video shows a man believed to have been Hines pointing toward the shark and showing no remorse that the animal was being tortured. You could also hear Wenzel and the others laughing in the video. All three of the men were charged with two counts of aggravated animal cruelty, which are felonies. Wenzel and Banak also were charged with a misdemeanor count of taking a shark from state waters by unlawful methods. The New York Times reported that Banak also is accused of shooting a black-nosed shark with a spear gun. That same afternoon, Banak caught the black-tip shark that was dragged behind the boat. Authorities said Wenzel had also shot at the shark several times with a 38 caliber revolver. Another video turned over to the state, according to the Miami Herald, shows beer being poured over a shark's gills and someone drinking the beer as it passes through. The dead animal, in other words, was used as a beer pong. A fourth man was also on the boat, but he has not been charged. He is reportedly cooperating with prosecutors. The three who were charged turned themselves in Tuesday and were released that day 
after posting bail. A state spokesman called the video disheartening and disturbing. Governor Rick Scott called it sickening. Coming up, the story about the arrest of a Pearson woman accused of storing dead dogs in a freezer inside the messy home she shared with her five-year-old daughter. A 911 call from a woman led to the discovery of an infested home in Pearson and the arrest of 35-year-old Victoria Kanger, who wound up being charged with child neglect because a small girl was living in the squalid conditions. The caller went down the list of problems with the house, and she saved the best for last. Like disgusting, non-livable for a five-year-old. I mean, she, she's had lice for the last eight months. You know, she came to us for summer. We finally got rid of them. She has lice again. It's, it's just unlivable. We need somebody down there now so they can see what she's living in right now because it's, she, I mean, it's, it's filthy. It's filthy. Just, it, it smells so bad you can't even go in the house. Oh, and there's like three dead puppies in the freezer. Oh, well, stay again. There's three dead puppies in the freezer. Volusia County deputies said they interviewed Kanger and her five-year-old daughter as the pair sat on a living room couch. They casually brushed off the cockroaches that were crawling on them. One of the deputies in the house felt an itchy sensation on his legs, and when he looked down, he saw that his pants were covered in fleas. Also inside the house were two live dogs and numerous cats. They had white fur and the deputy could see fleas crawling on them. There were more startling details released in the arrest affidavit. Predictably, animal feces were all over the floor throughout the house. The three dead dogs had been wrapped in plastic and cardboard and kept in the freezer. According to the sheriff's office, Kanger said she had been meaning to bury them, but she hadn't had a chance to obtain a shovel. Authorities were called because the girl's father, who lives in Georgia, had shown up to the house to visit his daughter and saw the conditions she was living in. The 911 call was made by the father's girlfriend. You know, I mean, we would like to take the daughter, his daughter, because, I mean, it's, I mean she stinks and, I mean, she's filthy dirty, you know, and it's just, we, we went to bring her food and um, it's just it's not a good situation for There was limited food in the house. Deputies said the cats occupied the spaces where food should have been kept in the pantry. The Florida Department of Children and Families was notified. Kanger was jailed on $2,500 bail. Coming up, a look back at the 1968 kidnapping of Barbara Mackle and the strange story of her kidnapper, Gary Christ. In the book, 83 Hours Till Dawn, Barbara Mackle described what it was like being forced inside a hole in the ground. At first, she thought it was going to be a room or some kind of pit where she could at least stand and maybe pace around. Instead, Gary Christ put Barbara into a tiny space and ordered her to straighten out. There was a light on. There wasn't a passageway in there. It was a box. In the book she wrote with two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jean Miller, she stated, quote, I was shaking. I was terrified. I was never so frightened in my life. I guess I became hysterical. At that point, Chris told her to quit acting like a baby. Then he put the top on. Then he inserted the screws and tightened them. What came next was the most frightening sound Barbara had ever heard. It was the sound of dirt falling on top of the box. She wrote in her book that there were no words to describe how terrified she was in that moment near Duluth, Georgia on December 17, 1968. Her book with Miller, which was published in 1971, was the last time Mackle ever publicly described her ordeal. She has never granted an interview. She is still alive and lives in South Florida. Christ was a cunning criminal. He had been described as a genius. After he was released from prison, he went on to become a physician. 
one quick-thinking FBI agent was the only one who stood in the way of Christ possibly getting away with a half million dollars in ransom money and running away to Australia with his girlfriend. Chris set his sights on kidnapping a college-aged daughter of a rich Florida developer. Perhaps no one in the real estate business loomed larger than the Mackle family. They built waterfront homes for the rich, but they also converted swampy, dense forest into desirable communities for the working class from the Northeast and the Midwest. Here is author-historian Jason Vuick, who is halfway done working on a book about the real estate titans from the 50s, 60s, and 70s who built Florida into what it is today. The Mackles, to me, um, really are Florida. Um, we talk about the first Florida land boom in the 20s that built some of our, you know, our great, um, you know, the Davis Islands in Tampa, at places in Palm Beach, Miami Beach. But the second Florida land boom was the one in the 50s and the 60s when, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Northerners moved to Florida on the installment plan. Um, when they moved to communities like Port Charlotte and Port St. Lucie and Spring Hill and Lehigh Acres and Cape Coral. And they bought lots, um, $10 down and $10 a month over, you know, seven or eight years. Um, and, and, and as I wrote, these were how working class, lower middle class Americans from the Midwest, from New York, from upstate hardworking Americans moved to Florida one installment at a time, um, essentially for the price of cigarette money is how the Mackles would advertise this. The Mackles weren't necessarily the richest, but they may have been the most pioneering. The Mackles were really the first. They were the ones to, you know, use this, like, building and and semi-prefabricated building, kind of like Levittown, New York, to keep prices low. They would buy defunct orange groves or uh, forests or mangrove islands, things like that, on the cheap at, you know, $30, $40 an acre, divide those into tens, if not hundreds of thousands of lots, which they would then sell to Northerners. Um, And so the Mackles were the first. They might not have been the biggest, but the Mackles were really the first in the in the early 50s to come up with the installment plan, which they put you know millions of dollars into Madison Avenue advertising, of selling the dream, selling the Florida dream. Robert Mackle, who was Barbara's father, and his two brothers honed their skills at an early age. After the war, they took the reins of the family business and expanded it exponentially. Deltona, for instance, was one of the communities for which they laid the groundwork. Well, they started out, it's fascinating, their father was an English immigrant who began in Atlanta, and, you know, all builders, especially in Florida, go through boom and bust. You know, I know that in southwest Florida, where some of my friends' parents were very rich, and they lost everything, and then they rebounded. I mean, that's the, the history of Florida. And the Mackle's father had built, you know, hotels and apartment buildings and um, college dormitories in the turn of the century and up until World War One in Nashville, Atlanta, Jacksonville, and Tom the sons how to build. And during World War II, two of them were Seabees. They were in the construction brigade, these, uh, the Navy uh, brigade that would um, you know, land on a, on a remote island in the Pacific and two days later have huts for 4,000 men built. So they knew how to do this. Where they struck it rich was they built um, Key Biscayne. They took a coconut farm and turned it into Key Biscayne. And then in the late they say 57, 58, they bought up with some Canadian investors, more or less a 100,000-acre ranch in Charlotte County, Florida, just a wooded, somewhat denuded old turpentine. Um, they would take pine trees and, and use the sap for turpentine, um, and that was what you did in that area. It wasn't very good for farming. The land was, was a little bit too dry, if you can believe it, by Southwest Florida standards. And they turned this into about a hundred or two hundred thousand lots, and this became Port Charlotte, Florida, and Northport, Florida. And that was the General Development Corporation. And in the early '60s, the Mackles 
uh, had a falling out with their investors, with um, the people they worked with, and they left um, a pretty bitter dispute and created the Deltona Corporation, so named for DeLand in Daytona. And that was because they had this wonderful stretch of beautiful oak land, as you know, in that area um, with with lakes, this wonderful stretch of land, and it was you know completely virgin land. And they built this entire community called Deltona. While one generation of Mackles was handing it over to the second generation, a delinquent 5,000 miles away was living day to day, cultivating a life of crime. Gary Christ was born in 1945 in Pelican, Alaska. He was the son of a salmon fisherman. By the age of 23, he had already served two stints in prison. But most of the time, he would avoid capture. He grew up on a boat, so he knew how to skipper a vessel. He learned how to break into cabins and steal boats. His life as an inmate and a reform school reject led him to California. In the mid-60s, he and another inmate planned and executed a breakout. He made it out alive, but his friend didn't. At the time, anyone convicted of breaking out of a California prison that resulted in death could be subjected to a death sentence. Chris declined to stick around to find out whether he'd be sent to the gas chamber. It was then that Chris traveled eastbound and carved a new niche for himself that none other than the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge. He created an alias, George Deacon. He found work as a lab technician. He did his share of dirty work. He operated machinery and assisted one professor who was doing advanced work on magnetically levitating high-speed trains. He showed to MIT that he had value. Before long, MIT instituted a background check program for employees, so Christ decided it was time to leave. He maintained good relations with his boss, who helped him land a job as a boat technician at the University of Miami. So Christ moved again. While on a boat to Bermuda, Christ was part of the crew working on the equipment. That's where he met Ruth Isaman Shire, a 25-year-old student. The two hit it off immediately. When they returned to land, they started dating in the fall of 1968. He trusted Ruth enough to tell her his criminal past, and she stayed with him. That information may have actually heightened her interest. It didn't take long before they decided they wanted to run away together. Chris came up with a plan. Ruth was on board. Chris used his brain. He spent hours on end at the library doing research. He knew what he wanted to do, and that was orchestrate a lucrative kidnapping. He knew to target a Miamian. He just needed to decide which one. He chose wealthy men with teenage or college-age daughters. He didn't want to abduct a child, mainly because they may not have been able to handle the trauma of being kidnapped and buried. He created a point system. Point one was closeness of family. Would a kidnapping generate a strong reaction? Point two was religion and piety. Could the family be relied upon to have a conscience, a keen sense of good versus evil? If so, they'd be more inclined to pay up. There were many other points to the system, and he researched everything. Did the father own guns? Did the daughter know self-defense? Could the family withdraw a large sum of money in a moment's notice? He came across a couple names, and through process of elimination, chose the Mackle family. Robert Mackle had a daughter, 20-year-old Barbara, an economics student at Emory University in Atlanta. He also discovered Mackle and his two brothers owned 22% of the Amex-listed Deltona Corporation. The family had 250,000 shares, and each share was worth $50. At that time, the company was earning more than it ever had. Chris didn't spend all his time in the library. He also spent it at the lab. 
constructing an 8-foot waterproof fiberglass covered capsule. The inside was made of plywood. It came equipped with an air vent and a fan, which was powered by a small motor. He even equipped a pump mechanism to prevent flooding in case it rained. He constructed everything in Miami, but Barbara was at Emory, 700 miles north. He had to go to Atlanta and find her, and he asked around on campus. He called um, the registrar there and acted like he was from a scholarship board. He called the social register in Miami. He called her church. He called everyone. And it's amazing, he said, how much information he was able to get, how much people were talkative to him um, under that guise. And so he waited around Emory and figured out that she was sick. She wasn't feeling very well. They had a, a bad rash of the flu at Emory at the time, and that her mother had actually flown up during exam week to nurse her back to health in a hotel room. It was easier than being in a dorm, and Barbara was an econ major, a very smart girl, very pretty, very dutiful, hardworking girl who could have gotten out of her exams, but would rather have her mother come to Atlanta to nurse her while she studied. Then they would take her home. And so Chris figured this out and went to the hotel, knocked on the door with Ruth, um, probably at four in the morning on December 17, 1968. Before making the long drive from Miami to Atlanta, Chris and his girlfriend made a stop at the Mackle home in Coral Gables and placed a ransom note under a rock. Then they took a Volvo station wagon with the box in tow and headed north on I-95. Around 4 a.m. December 17th, while Barbara and her mother, Jane, were in a deep sleep, they were awakened by someone banging at the door. Jane peeled back a curtain and asked who was there. Christ answered back that he was with the county police. He had on a police cap. He told Jane someone in her family had been in an accident, and he was in the hospital, seriously injured. Barbara, sensing something was wrong, told her mother not to open the door. But she did. Chris, a large man, burst through the door and ordered both women to stay quiet or else he would shoot them. He was holding an M1 carbine rifle. Ruth entered behind him. She wore a ski mask. Jane was defiant. She told the pair to take her money and get out. Then Christ ordered both of them to sit. Ruth tied their hands and feet and covered their mouths with duct tape. When Jane turned to look at Gary, he pressed the muzzle of his rifle against her head and ordered her to turn her head back around. Then Ruth held a rag that had been soaked in chloroform to Jane's face. Barbara, still sick with the flu, was only wearing a nightgown and socks. She was shoved into the back seat of Chris's Volvo and the car sped away. Chris drove to a wooded area near Norcross, Georgia. He took her out of the car. He injected her with a tranquilizer and also chloroformed her. Chris picked her up and carried her up a hill. Barbara was barely conscious. Chris laid her down and placed on her a sign with the word kidnapped etched on it and took a photo. Then he placed her inside the box. Barbara begged and screamed. Chris promised her he'd come back every two hours. That was a lie. He and Ruth had another long drive ahead. And as they took Barbara out into the woods to bury her, Jane Mackle had played like she was completely chloroformed. She wasn't, the mother Jane. And she hopped out into the parking lot, you know, falling several times. You know, this is a woman in her late 40s, early 50s, falling several times, hurting herself until she finally opened her daughter's car door. Um, she had her, I, I believe it was a Pontiac or something like that. And she opened it and then fell into the seat and then put her head onto the horn and just honked into the night until someone finally came out to get her. And then that's the beginning of the, the search for Gary Christ and figuring out where Barbara Mackle was. When word got out of the kidnapping of Barbara Mackle, there was mass hysteria. It occurred 49 years ago yesterday, so memories have faded. 
but at the time, every FBI agent in Florida was consumed with finding Barbara. The dramatic reaction reverberated all the way to the White House. And it's also fallen off the radar, kind of what the Mackles did um, as a family and all of these other land developers. You know, th- that was the golden age of Florida land development. And so it was a big, big deal. You know, the Mackles were friends of Nixon. I mean, the Mackles built Key Biscayne. I mean, it's one of the most desirable locations in Florida. And Nixon lived there. That was where Nixon's Florida White House was. And they knew J. Edgar Hoover. You know, they were one of the most prominent names in, in Florida history, one of the great builders of Florida, and in the same line as Plant and Flagler, but were largely forgotten. Um, but this was national news. Um, the moment it broke and the FBI was involved, J. Edgar Hoover sent his main man, who had, you know, worked both Kennedy assassinations, and they, they got after this immediately and chase Gary Chris really across the state. Robert Mackle and his closest associate flew to Atlanta. By the time they had gotten off the plane, Chris called the Mackle residence in Miami from a payphone. He told the associate who answered the phone at the house about the note that he had left in the yard. It was rolled up inside a bottle. The note, addressed to Robert Mackle, stated, quote, Sir, your daughter has been kidnapped by us, and we now hold her for ransom. She is quite safe, if somewhat uncomfortable. We offer no proof of our possession of her at this time. It will arrive by mail in a few days. Barbara is presently alive inside a small capsule buried in a remote piece of soil. She has enough food and water and air to last seven days. At the end of the seven days, the life-supporting batteries will be discharged and her air supply will be cut off. The rest of the note gave specific instructions. No cops, no FBI. Mackle was ordered to drop off $500,000 in recently issued $20 bills. He was specific about the bills. They should contain random serial numbers and none printed before 1950. They must all fit inside a suitcase. Christ even provided specific dimensions for that suitcase. Mackle also was ordered to pay for a printed ad in the personal sections in Miami area newspapers, stating in part, Loved one, please come home. Once the ad is printed and distributed, the kidnappers would call him at home and give him instructions on where to drop off the money. He was told to wear white and drive his Lincoln to the drop-off site. Once he followed all those instructions, he would be told of his daughter's location. Christ ended the note by telling him there would be no negotiations. The FBI did not disclose the kidnapping to the media, but a reporter from the Atlanta Constitution Journal got a tip, and a story was published. The Associated Press also wrote a story, which meant it was wired to every major newspaper across the country. By 3 a.m. on December 18th, Christ and Ruth arrived back in Miami, and they waited for the personal ad to appear in the paper. Here's a side note. FBI founder J. Edgar Hoover was an acquaintance of the Mackle family. His position as FBI director had been extended by President Nixon, coincidentally, on the day of the kidnapping. In 1963, Frank Sinatra Jr., who at the time was 19, was kidnapped. Barbara's kidnapping wasn't as high profile as that, but it was a close second. What made it all the more harrowing was that she was buried in a box underground. Robert Mackle was told to return to Miami because that's where the ransom note was found. So he and his associate flew back home. The morning of December 18th, the personal ad came out. Chris actually took his time to call. After several pranksters had called the Mackle house during the hours prior, Chris finally reached out to the Mackles at 3.47 a.m. on December 19th. He ordered Mackle to bring the suitcase to an undeveloped piece of land called Fair Isle. At that time, it was a wooded sandbar. Access to it was tricky. There was a walled-off bridge that connected Fair Isle to Miami's mainland. 
Today, Fair Isle is actually Grove Isle, and it is the site where million-dollar condos line the water. But back then, Fair Isle was barely known, even by those who lived in proximity to it. That part of the plan worked against not only Robert Mackle, but Chris, too. At first, Robert Mackle struggled to find it. He never did find it on his own. That meant he was late with the drop. Ruth was waiting a safe distance away with a pair of binoculars. An irate Chris called the house. Barbara's uncle, Frank, picked up the phone. He assured Christ that the money was coming. Robert was panicking until finally his friend showed up and helped him find Fair Isle. You could imagine. I mean, I, I just couldn't imagine how frantic I'd be. You know, deliver the money here. Well, you know, Miami was a big place. And even though the Mackles were Miami, the, the Mackles had developed Key Biscayne. There was just some, it was a tiny bridge in the back of a neighborhood to this fair isle. There's nothing on it. It's, it's you know, empty. It, it's not used. It's, I don't know how big it is, but it's not very big at all. Today, you might know where Grove Isle is. No one knew where Fair Isle was. Even that fair, oh, it's that little speck of land out there. So he didn't quite know where it was. He's in his late 50s, um, and he's just completely flummoxed, completely out of his mind with fear. I mean, his daughter had been kidnapped. Who knows where she is? And he goes to deliver the money, and he gets lost, um, just hopelessly lost, driving back and forth in these old Florida neighborhoods of Miami. Um until finally one of his assistants um, at the Deltona Corporation, Billy Vessels, he was an Oklahoma Heisman winner, um, if you can believe it, was a family friend, you know, built like a bulldog, a, a real tough uh, former football player in his 30s. He races out with an FBI agent, stops him on the road because the FBI is listening in on the radio. I mean, they hear his panic. He's just distraught. And Billy Vessels stops the car, jumps in with Mackle, and... and takes him to where the the bridge is. They drop the money and leave. Chris had parked his car at the Rickenbacker Causeway, a place, unbeknownst to him, was where police regularly parked their cars while on patrol. Chris was left waiting far longer than he had planned. He had a system down where he would communicate with Ruth via walkie-talkie. He had stolen a skiff and was prepared to put the money in a waterproof box and drag it back to shore. The delay meant his car was abandoned for too long. When he finally did fetch the money, he had to haul all that cash, which weighed about 75 pounds, and carry it back to his parked car, drive off, and meet Ruth at their designated meeting spot at a local Bible college. Instead, he wandered directly into law enforcement's sphere of sight. He had $500,000, two firearms, and scuba gear. They weren't just going to let him drive away. Chris picks up the money in a boat in Biscayne Bay and takes the boat. Um, Ruth was his lookout, and he takes the boat back towards the Rickenbacker Causeway, where it comes into Miami. Um, But Chris had parked his car there. Um, next to the bridge. Well, that's where the police, the, the, the Miami City police, and the police that, that would, um, the deputies that would police Key Biscayne, they would meet. That was where they would come across the bridge and turn around, or you would turn around the other way. And so as Chris comes out of the woods from the boat with this heavy suitcase weighing 60, 70, 80 pounds of $500,000 in 20s, He's carrying, you know, other items, I I believe a gun. They spot him. He literally comes out of the woods, and who should be sitting there but two different policemen eating donuts. (laughs) And they chase him, and he runs with the money, but has to drop it as he jumps over a fence. He nearly impales himself. He he cuts himself very badly in the groin and runs up a a ramp to I-95. He's shot at several times and gets away. Chris slipped away, but he was empty-handed, badly injured, and unable to meet up with Ruth. His meticulous plan disintegrated. Chris had no choice but to try again in obtaining the money. He still had all the leverage. No one other than him and Ruth knew where Barbara was buried. The cops found the Volvo, but they had no idea what was going on. 
The FBI didn't notify local police about the drop. There was a lot of confusion. Plenty of evidence was collected from that Volvo. Authorities traced the car back to George Deacon of Massachusetts. It would take some time before they discovered Deacon's true identity. Also uncovered were lewd photos of Christ and Ruth together. But there was also another photo that horrified the FBI. It was the image of Barbara holding the kidnap sign. They also found materials that linked Ruth to the crime. They knew the two people they were looking for. Chris called up the Mackle family again during the late hours of December 19th. The second set of directions was much simpler. Robert was to drop off the money along the road near the Tamiami Trail. Chris assured the person on the phone he would tell them where Barbara was buried within 12 hours of getting the money. Mackle's close associate, Billy Vessels, delivered the cash. Chris picked it up. He was then ready to carry out the next part of his plan. What Chris did, instead of fleeing by car, he went to West Palm Beach and bought a boat, an outboard, uh, you know, like a 15, 16 foot boat with an outboard engine, paid in cash, and the, the people in West Palm that, he, that sold him the boat knew something was amiss. This is really odd, this guy. He was impatient, he was rude, and he paid them in cash in a brown paper bag. And, and the son of the, the boat dealer actually said, wouldn't it be funny if that was the kidnapper of Barbara Mackle? And then they started to think about it. Chris had one more trick up his sleeve. The assumption was that he was heading to Bimini, when in fact, he was going to take the boat west. An odd part of the story that that most Floridians would know, that you can actually cross Florida through the Okeechobee Canal, the Okeechobee Waterway. You can go from Port St. Lucie to the Caloosahatchee River near Fort Myers by going through various locks. Um, Fishermen know this, but I grew up in Ponte Gorda. I had no idea you could cross Florida through these locks. Chris somehow did. And so while the FBI was focusing on the Fort Lauderdale to Bimini route, which is where you would go if you're going to Bimini, Chris went inland to old Florida, you know, going out to Okeechobee, places like Moorhaven. He went from lock to lock to lock. Chris, in spite of all of his criminal tendencies, was not a murderer. He was true to his word about Barbara. Before he headed down the canal, he called the Atlanta office of the FBI and gave the switchboard operator specific instructions on where to find the spot in the ground where he had buried his victim. Most of the FBI's forces were in Miami. When the agents in Atlanta got word that Barbara was buried near Norcross, they were stunned. After the investigation into the abduction near Emory, they thought their job was done. Miami was where all the action was. Even still, Agents jumped into action. Cars full of agents raced to the dirt road about three miles from Buford Highway. The agents found the road, which led to a dump. One of the agents found an area where the clay had appeared to have been upturned. He yelled out Barbara's name. She started knocking on the box. None of the agents brought a shovel. They tried to use sticks. Then they used their hands. Others found old cans and buckets or whatever they could get their hands on to scoop dirt. They heard Barbara underground and she heard them. And and as they brought her from the earth, she was somewhat perky. Uh, Maybe it was a defense mechanism. You know, maybe it was um, her way of dealing and coping with it. But she was healthy. She no longer had the flu. She had lost a lot of weight, was frail and couldn't walk, but was chipper, actually. And she says when they opened the casket, when they opened the box, she looked up and it was just very bright when she sees them. And the FBI agents were all weeping. They were just weeping to see this girl and to get her out of the box. It was a very emotional experience for everyone, (laughs) seemingly but Barbara Mackle at that moment. Barbara may have been upbeat when she was pulled from the ground, but during her entrapment, she had suicidal thoughts. In fact, in her book, she admitted that she had shut off the ventilation system, but the heat and heavy air became too unbearable. She flipped the switch back on and convinced herself that her father would pay the ransom and get her out. 
the Mackle family got word of Barbara's rescue by the director himself. Hoover called the house, and Frank Mackle, Barbara's uncle, answered. When Hoover told him the news, he yelled to everyone in the house that Barbara was safe. Robert and Jane Mackle embraced. While all of that was going on, a manhunt was underway for Christ. The FBI caught a big break when they got the call from the West Palm Beach boat dealer. There was one FBI agent who considered the possibility that Christ wasn't going south to Bimini. He wondered whether he was going to cross the state into the Gulf of Mexico. An aircraft was dispatched and spotted the boat. Christ had nearly reached the Gulf. He had made it all the way past Port Charlotte. He wound up trapped on Hog Island, a desolate place absent of any human civilization. He was caught right on Hog Island. Yes, he was. Two local um, Charlotte County Sheriff's deputies, um, there was actually the dog handler, the dog handler and another deputy, figured out that he would... You were on this mangrove island in the dark. They couldn't find him. It's impenetrable. Florida mangroves truly are. They're muddy and smelly. And he had left the money in the boat. He couldn't carry it because it weighed too much. And he was on this island all day and into the night. And these two local policemen figured, if you were going to get off this island, what would you do? Well, of course, you would swim towards the land, and you would swim towards the lights. And so they figured, we're going to go out 30 or 40 yards waist deep into the water and we're going to stand very still and we're going to wait and sure enough these two local cops not the fbi but these two local guys from from punta gorda um, they actually caught him and the fbi took him in that must have been the biggest arrest in in charlotte county history (laughs) yeah i'm sure it was every once in a while you hear of some crazy you know arrest but that certainly was especially in those days when and, and oddly enough hog island had been owned by the Mackles and by the General Development Corporation. Um, so out of all the places in Florida for Gary Chris to land and get caught, he gets caught right near and, and right on at General Development property, which I find fascinating as well. Barbara Mackle was found. The money was recovered and the mastermind was caught. Next up was catching Ruth Isom and Shire. The couple had split up after the pickup was botched. They never could meet up at the Bible College, so Chris came up with a plan B. They were going to meet up at a YWCA in Austin, Texas. Chris would come ashore somewhere in the Houston or Galveston area and take a bus to Austin, where he would meet up with Ruth and the two would go away together. It would have been easy for Chris to drive the boat across the Gulf into Texas. He grew up on a boat. He skippered them in rough seas. Had he not been caught outside Port Charlotte, there is no reason to think he wouldn't have made it. At any rate, Ruth found out while in Texas that her lover was behind bars. Ruth, not knowing what to do, um, caught a bus to Houston, thinking she was going to Austin, I believe, um, and then the news came out that Chris had been kidnapped. Uh, Chris had been caught. Um, She got a job as a nanny, um, but when the family um, wanted her to get a driver's license and and do some sort of background check, she fled again, this time to Oklahoma, and was caught in Norman, Oklahoma, uh, where she posed as a student. Uh, She worked at a car hop um, and tried to get a job with a uh, state mental institution that would hire students to work on the grounds. And it paid a little more, and she was broke. And she submitted her fingerprints. And uh, even in those days, it came back rather quickly that she was uh, on the 10 most wanted fugitive list. She's the first woman ever to be on the fugitive list. Um, and for a time, they thought Chris had killed her. They found the, the, the burned remains of a woman um, in the Everglades um, while Chris was on trial or right before that, but it wasn't her. Um, he went on trial of May 69, and she was captured in February, early March of 69. Um, they gave her a plea deal. She did, you know, seven years, six or seven years in prison and was deported. Um, and then they went after Chris because they really believed he's the one who came up with the plan, and he did, um, and he received life. Ruth, who is now in her 70s, has a Facebook page. She's a mother and a grandmother. She apparently never returned to her life of crime. Christ, however, did. 
He was sentenced to life for the kidnapping. He faced the death penalty. But jurors gave him a break because Barbara Mackle herself testified that she harbored no ill will toward Christ. Jurors also acknowledged that Chris took extra steps to ensure Barbara's survival and lived up to his promise to disclose her location to the FBI. It was still a shock to those who worked the case that Chris got paroled after serving only 10 years in a Georgia prison. He had even tried to escape once, and the warden of the prison called him an astute individual at manipulating others. Regardless, Christ was a free man again, and in 1989, he requested and received a full pardon. The memories of his crime hadn't yet faded from public memory after he served those 10 years in prison, and he may have contributed to that. While behind bars, Christ wrote a book of his own, Life, the Man Who Kidnapped Barbara Mackle. The prose belied the unoriginal, straightforward title, It was, in a word, dense. Here is one small passage from it. Dejection. The bitter gall of rejection. The tomain soup of anxiety all washed over me in a dull, mean storm of unreasonable emotion that would not crest. After prison, Chris showed some determination, at first, to improve his life. But again he became his own worst enemy. In November 2006, Atlanta Magazine published a story titled The Talented Dr. Christ, written by Steve Fennessy. In it, Fennessy told the story of a call received by Andy Watry, who in 1996 was executive director of George's medical board. His assistant had forwarded him the call. The man on the phone, who said his name was Christ, had admitted he had run-ins with the law early in life. Watry asked him whether he was Gary Stephen Christ, the one and only. Christ admitted he was. Watry then asked whether his run-ins with the law had anything to do with the kidnapping of Barbara Mackle. There was a pause on the phone. Christ answered affirmatively. Watry then told him, quote, My dad was one of the FBI agents who dug her up. And let me save you some time. You can forget about Georgia. And I'm going to alert the other states now that you're looking for a license. It was the only time Watry threw his weight around like that to a prospective applicant. But three years later, Chris, who graduated from medical school in the West Indies, opened his own practice in an Indiana town called Christney. He touted himself as a physician for the poor. He seemed to epitomize the kind of rehabilitation that parole boards hoped to see from those they release. Christ even wrote an apology letter to Barbara while in prison. He did so after reading the book she had written about her ordeal. While in Indiana, he was a well-liked physician. He once saved a man's life. He even did some pro bono work for patients who needed it. But he never could escape his past. When the media learned of Chris becoming a physician, they tried interviewing him, and he was curt with them. The negative press resulted in a lot of unwanted attention, not just from the public, but from the state medical board. Chris's license was suspended. It was subsequently revoked, after the board learned of some disciplinary actions Christ had failed to disclose on his application. Those actions occurred while he was a resident in West Virginia. He had once told a female HIV patient that her boyfriend must have been thrilled about her contracting the disease. He also told another female patient during a breast exam that she had big boobs. He also told a teen who had an eating disorder that she had a big butt. Christ was deflated after losing his license. He was a lost soul, just like he had been while stealing boats in Alaska as a kid. A few years after losing his license, he took a boat all the way to Columbia, and on the way back, he was found with a cooler full of contraband, almost 40 pounds of cocaine. His boat also contained four passengers, two from Ecuador and two from Colombia. 
they had paid Chris to smuggle them into the United States. He was sent to prison again in 2007. He was released four years later and has since lived a life of seclusion in Auburn, Georgia, according to a story published last year in the Atlanta Constitution Journal. When a reporter and photographer from that newspaper showed up at his door, he shooed them away. The story of Barbara Mackle's kidnapping spawned two made-for-TV movies. The Longest Night aired in 1972 and starred David Jansen, who previously gained fame playing Richard Kimball in the TV show The Fugitive. His co-star was James Farentino, who later starred in Blue Thunder and other TV series. A second TV movie, 82 Hours Till Dawn, starred Robert Urich and Peter Strauss. It aired on CBS in 1990. At the time the second movie aired, Christ was working as an intern at a hospital in Connecticut. The airing of that movie caused him so much negative attention, he decided to resign and move to another state to resume his medical career. Both of those movies are available online for streaming. Vuick described to me why the Barbara Mackle kidnapping is such a frightening story, one that very easily could have had a far worse ending. Well, what's interesting and what's frightening to me, it's not just the fact that Barbara was buried in a box, and they really didn't know that at first until they received a note. You know, Chris you know, kidnapped her in the middle of the night, had to take her out you know, into the woods, bury her, and then drive from Atlanta to Miami. And, and that's the most frightening. It's, to me, it's utterly frightening that she was buried in a box. I mean, it, it's, you know, that's an age-old tale of being buried alive, right? They have terms for it. Um, and the fear of being buried alive, I'm sure, is in some sort of you know phobia. But what's even worse was he got on the highway, and twice um, he could have been killed by police easily without telling anyone where Barbara was. There was no mechanism there other than Ruth and Barbara, uh, excuse me, Ruth and Chris calling the FBI on the phone to locate Barbara. If, if he had been killed, um, she'd still be underground, probably buried under a strip mall outside of Norcross, Georgia. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I discuss the story of Daytona Beach police officer Sam Etheridge, who was killed in the line of duty on Christmas morning. 1980. Among my special guests will be the victim's widow, Susie Etheridge. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Thank you.